Like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. I survived the man camp out. It was exhilarating. It was terrifying. And once again, Mother Nature took a gigantic dump on us. This time, however, it wasn't on the way in. It was the night before the way out. So, enjoying it, uh, to say the least, it it was really fantastic. The entire weekend was really great. We ended up going a little bit longer than we did last time. We finally got to Island Lake, and it was bustling with activity. There were tons of people all over this place. And uh, let, let's just say, I think we might have scared some of the people away, <laughs> to be quite honest, with our raucous behavior. Uh, the videos are up on YouTube. Uh, there are multiple photos all over Google Plus and Facebook. So if you are connected in any way to me, you're going to be able to see those uh, if you are so inclined. But let me just say, I was first introduced to Island Lake, which is the center of this whole man camp out thing that I created last year, when I was in high school with a couple friends. And I went up there and we had drank and sort of just enjoyed the... uh, atmosphere and there was no one there and we would see like lone falcons streaking across the sky and serene peaceful beauty it was literally at the time my Walden pond I mean it it was really where I could just escape reality when I most desperately needed it in those high school years and focus on things like the fish popping up to grab a bug on the surface of the lake, or the sun cascading light through the canopy above. True beauty and peace. And then at the end of it, you hike back into the crazy hustle and bustle of reality, but it was those moments that inspired me to really start this whole man camp out thing, and I wanted it to be a man camp out for a couple reasons. One, we don't, I don't really get to like hang out with my friends um, on a regular basis, so it's nice to you know just set a date, say, hey, these three days we're just gonna go drink heavily, catch up with things that are going on in our lives, and just talk about what's new, our hopes and dreams of what to come, and sort of the man camp out itself culminates as a ritual in the truest sense. We are reinvigorated to face you know reality afterward. Uh, with a clearer sense of purpose and being. At least that's what you hope for. That's what I hope for. What usually ends up being the result of a man camp out are hangovers, blisters, numerous bruises and cuts, and exhaustion. Extreme exhaustion. 
tons of bug bites, sunburns. Uh, it, it was a lot of fun. We ended up cliff diving off of the center of, or, or I guess, the... Well, Island Lake is sort of like this oblong heart shape. And so at the, the center of the heart, as it comes in on itself, there's this 40-foot rise cliff. So we would jump off that, um, which was exhilarating and terrifying. I had never jumped from anything that high before. So it, it was, you know, for me it was a big thing. I mean... I've I've scaled down higher heights, but I have like rope attached to me. There's protective gear in place. This was literally me trusting that the rocks below were going to be deep enough and jumping. <laughs> it's really it was it was really a lot of fun in retrospect at the time. I was I was genuinely shooken um with excitement. Also, you know, before I head out, headed out to the man camp out I had a couple days sort of to um, decompress from work while I was waiting on a friend to take a flight in. And I was laying down. I had just opened a bottle of wine, and I was barely sipping on my first glass when my son busts in. <clears throat> excuse me. Busts in the, the house, eyes all puffy and red as if he'd been crying. So we, you know, ask him what's going on. He said some kids stole his bike. So immediately I jump into fight-or-flight mode. I grab my keys in my wallet, and I scream at him to get in the car and start talking. I know that time is of the essence, and if you do not catch this fast or find them fast, then chances are you're never going to find these bikes again. And with this bike, we bought it second-hand used, so we didn't pay a lot of money for it at all. We didn't write down any like um, serial number on it. I mean, I genuinely didn't even take it into account um, that it would get stolen in our neighborhood. I knew our neighborhood had some teenagers that were supposed to be tough, but I'd never experienced anything personally, and so I had always assumed that was you know sort of just fear talking, which it often does in communities. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I'm driving toward the direction that he told me it was taken, and... Uh, frantic, heart-beating, adrenaline-pumping, wondering, am I going to kick these kids in the teeth for stealing my son's bike? You know, what am I going to do? I, at the very least, I want to uh, humiliate them. I want to belittle them and put them in a, a mental place where they would in the future think twice about stealing some child's bike. And we drove around for 20 minutes, and I didn't see anyone or anything. We went to the house, we talked to the parents, we talked to bystanders, um, and either these people were in a completely different neighborhood, which stands to reason if you're going to steal from someone, you're not going to do it in your own backyard, um, or they were being protected by people that knew them. Whatever the case, you know, at this point, I'm feeling completely helpless. Like, what can I seriously do at this point? I can't find them. I cannot punish them. So I turn to the only thing that I can in this case, which is the law, which is more of an act to settle my nerves and or my son's nerves than it is an actual solution. I understand that the police have a lot more important things, I hope, than looking for a kid's stolen bicycle, even though that's part of their job. I, I would personally prefer them looking for murderers or, you know, child molesters than a kid's bike. But 
we were immediately responded with uh, a car and two police officers on my front lawn. We explained the situation. We gave them descriptions of the bike and the suspects. And um, that was that. And I don't think we'll ever hear from them again. But the feeling of humility that my son feels, even though he did nothing wrong, the sense of rage that is still in the back of my mind from the occurrence and just every time from that day on that I've been home away from this man camp out I've been driving the streets in the mornings and evenings looking for that bike um, looking I just hoping someone is going to drive around the corner with it I don't fucking care if it's another 8 year old and I don't care if it's a 40 year old man I'm going to knock them the fuck off that bike and take it back and uh well, honestly, that's probably going to be it because I don't want to end up in jail. But I'm going to get my kid's bike back if I fucking can. And it, 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 it's really like, it's one of those things where, you know, okay, big deal. I'm going to buy another bike. I'm going to write down the fucking serial number this time. And I'm going to make sure he understands and carries a chain lock with him at all times. So, lesson learned. But, I still feel... The need, like I, I'm almost at the point where I, I want to perform a ritual about this. Like that's what it is. Um, the only thing holding me back is having a direct connection to these people. You know, I don't want to just throw out rage into the atmosphere and just let it land where it will. I really want to direct it on these two fucking kids. But if I don't know who they are, that becomes a challenge, challenge naturally. So that was my week. That was yours. <laughs> okay, well, enough of that. I do have a really great show for you this week. Oh, and you know what I didn't say? At the very top of it, I just literally jumped into my spiel. Welcome to Nine Cents. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world, and I am your host, Adam Campbell. It is always great to have you. It's August 28th, and as I said already, I do have a great show for you this week. Today in The Devil's Advocate, I'm going to be talking about inferiorism. And this is an article that Anton LaVey wrote and published in 1998 in his book, Satan Speaks. In Infernal Informant, I'm going to be talking about two articles again, as always. Cheney Takes Cheap Shots in Memoir by Powell. And this was so much not what I was prepared for. And I have a very special interview, one of the final in the Radio Free Satan podcast interviews. This time is a newcomer, Vasco Radio. Very excited to talk to them and, uh, you know, uh, talk a little bit about the platform of their show and uh, what what motivates them as uh, human beings. Uh, Fascinating gentlemen, uh, truly gentlemen. It it was a really great pleasure talking to them. And uh, that should uh, wrap it up for this show. So, let's dive right into The Devil's Advocate with Inferiorism. In this arid wilderness of steel and stone, I'll raise up my voice that you may hear. To the east and to the west I beckon, to the north and to the south, I'll show a sign proclaiming a death. To the weakling, wealth to the strong. Can I get a hail Satan? I said, can I get a hail Satan? We are the Devil's Advocates. Welcome to the Devil's Advocate. 
As always, let me preface this segment by saying that I am a Satanist. I am a member of the Church of Satan, but I do not speak for the Church of Satan. That is all. Inferiorism. This is from Satan Speaks, written by Anton Zander LeVay, published in 1998. The article itself, and as always with any of these articles, I'm not going to read directly beginning to end of, of this. I, I, my goal here is for you to get out there and read it yourself. I'm going to paraphrase what he's saying and sort of give you my take on it. But first and foremost, what is inferiorism? Uh, he defines it as this. Inferiorism is the foisting of the undesirable in any form upon a public which not only accepts the inferior, but transmutes it into the most desirable. Now, Anton LaVey talks specifically to the automobile industry in this uh, focusing around uh, chrome. What I'm going to do is talk to you sort of in, in my own personal experience. So, growing up in the 80s, you saw a lot of this. You know, we were coming out of the uh, 60s and 70s where uh, splurging on decadent lifestyles um, just became quite impossible with the downturn in the economy. The 80s, I think, was a response to that. And I'm hoping we're not about to experience it again in our current economic situation. I distinctly remember growing up and watching sitcoms like Facts of Life or Eight is Enough, where you would see these dangerous and bad boys in these holy jeans and tore-up clothing. And that really spoke to an entire generation of children thinking that that is the goal. So what we want to do is look as bad as possible because that's going to make us the coolest or uh, uh, the most popular or suddenly the most interesting. Suddenly you go from this idea of a pauper, uh, fashion for the most poor, becoming the trendy, the neat, the hip, the happening, the cool, though hip was never part of the lingo at all. Um, but, you know, that really spoke to us. So even me as a kid, I would grow up watching these rock bands with their holy jeans and uh, tore up t-shirts, and I would mimic that, thinking that that was what it, you know, what was important. That was what was great and, and powerful. What I never realized was that rather than focusing on the fashion, I should have been focusing on the message behind what they were playing or, or the reality behind their situation. And, and that's something you can't always expect children to do, so we always have to sort of take this cultural stance on it. Are we going to be okay with what we recognize as trash and what we throughout history have acknowledged as trash being turned into the good, the great, the um, the pro the popular thing to do. Is this the behavior that we want our kids to exhibit? And there was a period in our American fashion and expressive history where that was the thing to do. What Anton LaVey speaks to in this article is that outside of that, there are a generation coming up appreciating what was quality. Um... Not just, you know, the quick, fast, and flashy, but genuine craftsmanship or artistry in it, the truest sense of the word. Um, 
we are seeing now at is at the end of his article a resurgence of that appreciation and i bring this up because inferiorism is going to crop its head up not just in fashion or in or in the automotive industry or any commercial industry but it's really the only thing that advertisers have to suck you in We've done and created a lot in our society, so what we're seeing is a regurgitation. And a couple episodes back, back, I yelled and ranted about the movie industry doing this, but regurgitating old ideas, which at the time had sort of a negative connotation, into something now that has a great connotation, and it is the desired. And we need to stop and realize that there's a reason why it wasn't that way in the first place. And there's a reason why what has been appreciated throughout time was appreciated. And there's genuine... Another avenue I'm seeing this is in in traditional art circles. So you have artists who focus entirely on the computer and you have artists who focus entirely on um, the physical, the, the... the material on the in the creating creating with their hands in in paint or ink or clay, and there's sort of this uh, pop culture war going on between the two of them, and it's nothing new. It's been going on you know since the dawn of of computer art, as it were, and and whether one is better than the other, but the more software comes out with filters to create effects that artisans have been perfecting for centuries in the blink of an eye, you start to think that maybe that's not so great anymore. Our desired effects on an artistic level is to create impact upon viewing. And if we can do that in a shortcut manner, well, some people are quite happy to do so. But then that actually takes away from the pockets of those who are taking the time to learn the techniques. So does that matter? Is that a part of the art itself? Well, I, I think it is. And I think it's part of the craftsmanship, be it a car or be it uh, a painting. You know, I mean, anything you create, a sculpture, a, a bracelet for your daughter, whatever it is. We need to maybe take a step back when we're presented something new, because chances are it's not new. It's repackaged, and it's screaming with inferiorism. Check out the article. Definitely check out the book Satan Speaks. Let's move on into The Infernal Informant. Warriors of darkness, earthquakes, volcanoes, the dead rising from the grave, human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria, all in the informant. The first article today is Cheney takes cheap shots in memoir, Powell, the AFP about 20 hours ago, Washington. Ex-Vice President Dick Cheney takes cheap shots in his new memoir in his criticism of top members of the George W. Bush administration, former U.S. Secretary of State Colin Powell said Sunday. Cheney predicted, In My Time, a personal and political memoir, would be a sensation that would cause heads to, quote, explode, language Powell took exception to in an interview on CBS's Face the Nation program. 
My head isn't exploding. I haven't noticed any other heads exploding in Washington, D.C., said Powell, who scathingly suggested this was the kind of language expected from a supermarket tabloid, not a former vice president. The two Bush-era heavyweights have often traded blows at the roots of their disagreements. Go right back to the Iraq War and the policy that led them to the 2003 invasion that ousted Saddam Hussein. Powell said Cheney alleged that as Secretary of State, he had withheld his best advice from Bush while offering stinging critiques of the president's policies to others. That's nonsense. The president knows that I told him what I thought about every issue of the day, he said. Powell also accused Cheney of seeking to smear his successor as Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, as well as ex-CIA Director George Tennant. Quote, He's taken the same shots at Condi with an almost condescending tone. She tearfully did this or that. And he's taken the same shots at George Tennant, said Powell, who, like Cheney, was a Republican appointed by Bush. Cheney, in his memoir, condemns Powell's stance on the Iraq War. But the former military man, who also served as chairman for the Joint Chiefs of Staff and National Security Advisor, brushed aside the critique. Quote, Mr. Cheney may forget that I'm the one who said to President Bush, if you break it, you own it. He said, adding pointedly, Mr. Cheney and many of his colleagues did not prepare for what happened after the fall of Baghdad. End quote. Cheney, vice president at the time of the September 11, 2001 attacks, was seen as one of the biggest hawks in Bush's administration as the United States launched its invasion of Afghanistan and later of Iraq. Powell added, Mr. Cheney is free to say what he wishes, but so far I haven't seen anything in it that is as explosive as he claims it is, and I don't see any heads laying on the street. So that was the article. Essentially, it was just um, Powell's take on Cheney's book. And I wanted to bring this up for a number of reasons here. First and foremost, I have respect for Powell and his career. I, I don't necessarily agree with his politics, but he's always been a straightforward stand-up guy. He will stand on his ground, uh, but he uses reason to dictate action. And he does not bow to fear that the rest at the time of the Bush administration did. And it, they were all bowing from fear directed from this very Penguin-esque from the Batman comics, Dick Cheney. Now, a lot of news... Oh, yeah, I say news. A lot of comedy outlets play with Cheney's appearance, um, calling him the Penguin like I just did, or saying that uh, he feeds on the blood of puppies. Because Cheney is a very shrewd, very conniving, uh, very, in the truest sense of the word, in my opinion, evil human being. And I say evil, and I'm a Satanist. <laughs> so what I mean by evil is that... Uh, what you like is good, what you don't like is bad. That's why he's evil. He stands for everything I think is shitty in corporatism, everything that's shitty in the Republican Party, and everything that's shitty as a human being. All this disgusting human cares about, all he cares about is money and saving face. He realizes there's no way that anyone else in the entire universe is going to give him credit for anything, because everything he does is sort of negative, and I'm using a bit of hyperbole here. But the only way he's going to be able to get any face in this reality is by publishing his own book and sort of trying to hype it up in a Ann Coulter-esque 
way. Uh, truly using hyperbole. Uh, heads will explode if you read my new... You know, if they there was actually like a tell-all, he might be at the uh, negative side of a mob, this guy. So I really just kind of wanted to bring that up. So sort of uh, another chance to uh, <laughs> point fingers at a really terrible human being, Dick Cheney. And, um, you know, the, the real substance to this article is truly that if you are such a hollow human being that the only way you can get anyone to say anything good about you, anything positive about you, is by publishing your own book, talking about yourself, you truly are a failure. Truly a waste of skin. And that's what Dick Cheney is. Let's move on to the next article, shall we? This is from CNN. CNN's Robertson on Finding Lockerbie Bomber by Nick Robertson. Nothing could have prepared me for what I'm about to see. I'm in a fancy villa in a posh part of Tripoli, walking through the garden past a huge plastic children's swing set and a trampoline that dominate the lush green lawn. A young man is filling a large swimming pool. All this in a city where water is running out. I've not had a shower or washed in running water for three days. The Almagrahes, it seems, are not short of money. This villa connects to another, equally palatial, but far more contemporary. It's clad in modern ceramic tiles like something you'd see in trendy London neighborhood. As I walk up the grand staircase towards the front door, I'm mentally composing my questions. What I'll ask Abdel Basat el-Magrahi first. Did you do it? Did Gaddafi give you the orders? I've been waiting for this moment for a long time. When Pan Am Flight 103 was blown out of the sky over Lockerbie, Scotland, I spent the night trying to get the first live pictures back to London and saw the first grainy images revealing the horror of what had happened. I'd covered the McGrahys trial in Camp Zeist in the Netherlands, a tiny patch of Scotland on Dutch soil created out of a compromise between... I'm sorry, a compromise with Libyan ruler Muammar Gaddafi to get the trial in a Scottish court and begin Libya's long, slow rehabilitation with the West. A UN observer called the trial a spectacular miscarriage of justice. Al-Magrahi pleaded innocence and always has said he wanted to clear his name. He knew more than came out of the trial. When he was released from a Scottish jail two years ago, on compassionate grounds, giving only three months to live by doctors after serving eight years of a life sentence, it seems that perhaps the time had come to learn his secrets. A few weeks later, I saw him, and officials told me I might get to interview him. It was a lie. They had too much to hide and did their best to keep him away from journalists. Now, with Gaddafi gone, the moment had come. His family invites me inside his home to meet him. Through the doors, after the harsh sunlight, it's darker than I expect. My eyes quickly adjust, and I'm scanning the large hall, looking for the gray-haired Al-Magrahi. The last time I saw him, he was in a wheelchair. He looked weak, worn out by meeting so many family and friends on his return, I was told. But I thought at least we could have a conversation. Maybe it would be a little slow, but I'm ready. My question's clear. We walk toward a rather grand staircase. Then, just as I expect to begin to climb, we turn abruptly left into a tiny, high-ceilinged room lined with red and tan wallpaper, patterned in the way elderly men seem to like it in their studies. I was expecting Al-Magrahi to be in a comfy armchair, but he was not. 
where the chair might have been, in the corner facing the door, was a metal hospital bed, the type with wheels that can raise and lower a patient's back. Beneath the blankets was Al McGrahi, eyes shut, inert. At first, I didn't know what to do. My careful thought-through questions were useless. I was stunned. Was I being shown him so I would see him with my eyes how sick he was? Should I try to talk to him? I took in all I was seeing. The oxygen mask on his face, the old sick lady, his mother, I was told, at his bedside, the dripping hanging a foot from his bed. His skin seemed paper-thin, his face sallow and sunken. Was this all drama for me? Was this real, or had they invited me after my fifteen-minute wait outside after the stage was set? My fingers are fumbling on my camera. I'm still in shock. This was so much not what I was prepared for. In the two decades since the bombing, which killed 270 passengers, crew, and townspeople below, it seemed the secrets of the attack would die with the bombers. Al McGrahi had promised to prove his innocence. With Gaddafi gone, I thought this could be the moment he points the finger of blame. The air feels heavy in the room, silent aside from quiet hissing from the oxygen bottle by the bed. Then his son Khalid speaks. He tells me his father hasn't seen a doctor since they rescued him from a hospital before AAA fell to the rebels, whom he said looted all the medicine from the house. Quote, we just give him oxygen, his son says. Nobody gives us any advice, and we and some food by injection drip. You see his body, he's weak. End quote. As we speak, I watch to see if his father stirs. There is no movement. His eyes remain shut. Khalid keeps talking. What about demands? He finishes his sentence in Britain, I ask. My dad, he's still in house, his son says. If you send him to Scotland, he will die by the way, here or there. Although neither of us know it, at that moment he'll soon be relieved. This evening, the National Transitional Council announces they'll leave al Megrahi be and won't send him back to Britain. The family wants me to leave. They are polite. We talk in hushed whispers. They told me, when they first let me in, that I had only two minutes with him, and it's been ten already. They want al Megrahi to spend his last days in peace, they say, away from reporters and their questions. But before I leave, I must ask the toughest questions of all. How much longer does he have left to live? Nobody can know how long he will stay alive. Nobody knows, Khalid says. His eyes droop. His face is drawn, too, his voice wavering and emotional. This is a family already grieving. Whatever secrets al Megrahi had will soon be gone. As I leave, I'm still shocked by what I've learned. The world is about to lose one of the few people who can piece together what really happened that dark, wintry night, 29,000 feet over Scotland. That ends the article. So my question is this. If someone convicted of a crime is on their deathbed, do they deserve compassion? Now, he was released from Scottish jail two years ago on compassionate grounds, the article says, because he only had three months to live. But this individual caused the deaths of 270 passengers, crew, and townspeople. He was put in jail for it. Now that he's dying, he's let out, and he's allowed to just relax in his final death throes. 
I gotta tell you, um, from where I'm sitting, this is bullshit. I understand the idea of human compassion, but you must reserve that compassion for the humans that exhibit human behavior, that actually contribute to society, that don't attempt to destroy, either because someone paid them money to do it, or because of their own sick and twisted religious or political ideologies. If we are going to agree that being human is a positive expression of existence, and I'm not meaning positive as in hold hands and sing kumbaya, I mean you're actually contributing without taking away. You are providing more to society than you are taking from it. If that is the definition of a decent human being, well, this guy's not a human being. And he does not deserve the compassion to live out his last three months, his last one week, his last hour in any type of peace. I understand that his family may disagree, and I understand that they may have compassion for a side of him that he hasn't shown the world, but he killed fucking people. He killed them. Probably because Gaddafi paid him to do it. And that's as far as it goes. And if he didn't do it, well, he was convicted by it, for it. And that's enough. There should be no compassion. Lex Talionis, people, come on! Strap a bomb to him and end it right now. It will save his family the additional days of suffering, so they are innocent, yes. They should not have to continue to see someone in this negative state. So we may be doing them a little bit of a favor, though they will never see it that way. We just can't allow stuff like this to happen, and we have to end it. So don't give convicted criminals their last days in peace. He should have been executed, and this is just prolonging that. And I don't care whose buck it's landing on. They shouldn't have to support it. And that's going to do it for this week's Infernal Informant. After a short break, we will jump right into Vasca Radio, in Creature Feature. Venture down into Lambert's basement and join me, Dave Ingram, and Eagle, Hello. where we time travel via nostalgia to a golden age of big band swing and jazz, only available on Radio Free Satan. are different than cats and hey what if jack nicholson were hey what if we are the world was sung by the cast of friends i think it might go something like this hi everyone i'm jay leno anyone remember when i was funny eat doritos ladies and gentlemen dane cook are you fed up with comedy that's made for the masses sick of stand-up comedian hacks with the same old routines that you've heard a thousand times before Equally tired of shock jocks who equate loudness with laughter? Hello, my name is Reverend Bill M., creator and host of The Devil's Mischief. 
a show where every week I present a new hour of comedy and novelty of devilish proportions. So tune in to The Devil's Mischief. Visit devilsmischief.com or radiofreesatan.com to download the latest podcast. The Devil's Mischief. Carnal comedy clips and netherworld novelty numbers simply not made for the masses. Are you looking for music from the 80s and the new wave, post-punk, and other hits? Jay Nothing, the host of The Metro, will take you back to the 80s with songs that made the decade of me so memorable. Get the weekly updates at RadioFreeSatan.com. And remember, Hail Satan. Hello, my name's Dave Ingram. And I'm Donovan. And we are Metal Breakfast Radio. Inviting you to join us with a few beers each week. For a dose of metal scrutiny. Some verbal skullduggery. And a hell of a lot of rubbish. Rubbish! Find us on metalbreakfastradio.com, darksentinel.dk, and radiofreesatan.com. The damsel in distress comes, breaking through the underbrush. Fear painted on her face. The darkness hunting her is near. She moves the swamp, water slowing her escape. The creature nears, the damsel turns, hands rising to her sides as her last effort to thrust the creature back. Welcome to Creature Feature. Welcome to Creature Feature. This week, I'm being joined by some very special guests. That's right, I'm continuing with my Radio Free Satan podcast interviews, and the newest of the podcasts, Vasca Radio. <laughs> Joining me are the personalities behind Vasca Radio, Warlock to Your Instinct, and Citizen Prometheus. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me. I know you're very busy. Uh, I really do appreciate the time. How are we both this morning? Uh, it's a great pleasure. Thank you for asking. I'm perfectly fine. And I'm very glad to, to be on Nine Cents Podcast. That's quite an honor. Same here. Same here. Uh, very thrilled to be on Nine Cents. Doing wonderful. It's a beautiful morning here in North Carolina. And how are you this morning, Adam? I'm great. I'm working on my second cup of coffee, so I'll be really good in <laughs> a couple more minutes. Uh, I actually wanted to have you guys on this show here for a little while. I've been following your podcast since you started uh, releasing it, primarily because the formats that we both follow are, are relatively similar, um, though the podcasts themselves are quite different. Outside of just having uh, personalities and, and regular weekly updates um, of not only uh, world and local information, uh, you guys are featuring primarily music, um, not only of uh, other featured artists that you guys uh, you know appreciate and respect, but of your own music, which is just amazing and fantastic in and of itself. I'd like to talk to you guys about Vasca Radio as a whole, but before I do that, I would like to get to know individually, both of you, a little bit more. 
this is actually the first time that we're talking together. So maybe, uh, Warlock, to your instinct, could you tell me a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. Absolutely. I always like to talk about myself. <laughs> <laughs> I am a family man. I, I enjoy a beautiful family. Uh, I enjoy a relationship with another Satanist, another Church of Satan member, the beautiful lady, Loki. Um, we have a great family here, and we're struggling with the with the U.S. economy, of course, like many people, oh, yeah. um, we, we try not to react the same way as other people do, and we, we really do our own thing here. A little bit about myself, I enjoy creating sounds that shock the herd and pleases those that know what I'm doing, um, which is pretty much where the idea of Vasco was created between uh, Citizen Prometheus and myself. Very nice. And when did you first realize you were a Satanist? Um, in the early nineties, um, you know, I've always knew that I was different from other people. My mother used to tell me constantly when I was a child that I was so much like my father, it was scary. But, um, I, I actually grew up listening to, um, to heavy metal music that that particular genre interested me as a young man. And along the way, I read an interview with King Diamond and there was mention of Dr. LeVay and Church of Satan. When he was going solo, um, a lot of people were focusing on his religious aspect, and it appealed to me. And in the early 90s, just out of the blue, the name came back to me, Anton LaVey. So I went down to the bookstore, purchased the Satanic Bible, and within a couple of hours proclaimed myself a Satanist. I finally knew the label to put on myself and identify myself as I was already living. What prompted you to join the Church of Satan versus just uh, identifying as a Satanist? Well, I lived as a Satanist for many years, um, just just doing my own thing. And I think it was in mid-2000 was when I came off the road, and I traveled quite a bit in my career. And when I came off the road is when I started using the Internet more, uh, really getting an idea of an online presence, and... I went to Magister Frost, Letters to the Devil, started meeting other Satanists there, and later joined the Church of Satan in, I think it was in 05, and the rest is history. Nice. And Citizen Prometheus, uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, absolutely. What am I doing mostly? I'm writing essays and articles on various subjects, uh, mostly related to Satanism, Many of these essays and articles have been uh, published in the Devil's Diary magazine that uh, Wall of Blackthorn publishes. Nice. Um, others are on uh, web uh, magazines, online magazines, so you, you can find my essays uh, as well on the Undercroft. Um, I've been doing that for uh, a couple of years now, and uh, the subjects range from... Uh, as I said, Satanism-related issues to um, psychology, uh, sociology, observations, most mostly observations that I make in my everyday life, uh, such as herd behavior or psychology of the herd. Um, also, a magic, um, greater magic, and even more frequently, uh, lesser magic. That's that's something I experience uh, quite frequently in my everyday life, and also. This leads to, to another point. I also cover subjects that deal with the more feared aspects of, of, of life or the feared aspects of, of society, like uh, th things happening on the fringe, things like crime or haunted houses. I, I've always felt 
these things uh, attracted my interest in a way. And I, I always wished to explore these things a little bit uh, as an observer, so to say. And um, Very cool. It's, it's interesting from a satanic perspective because uh, many things become quite clear uh, once, once you, you view these things uh, from, from, the, uh, from the point of the satanist. Um, apart from that, um, I, I enjoy creating sounds as my co-host, Tier Instinct. My current uh, project, The Invisible War, is an electronic music project. Uh, you could also say it's virtual orchestra. In a way, I try to, to create soundscapes that uh, resemble um, orchestral music, uh, even though the, this is done by electronic means alone. And my uh, new album, Ego Equals God, is my first album, actually. And, uh, of course, that, that is an example also. It, it also carries the idea of the Vasca, um, which, which brings us to, to Vasca Radio. We will come later on, I think. Yeah. Yes, that's the one thing. And... Apart from that, I'm interested in uh, fierce, as I said, like haunted houses. I'm very interested in martial arts, Chinese martial arts, most, mostly weapons, collecting things. I collect lots of stuff from, from books to uh, antique furniture and everything. And my wife is always angry with me because I always <laughs> fill up our house with, with lots of stuff. Yeah. It's uh, maybe even a fetish, you could say. Oh, nice. Nice. Well, that's really cool. When did you first realize you were a Satanist? Uh, that was at the end of the 90s. It must have been in 1999. That's when I first came to, to read the Satanic Bible. I had heard about the book uh, before. I visited a friend's place, and he had a copy. And um, I had to wait for the friend because he was on the phone. So I started to read, and uh, it fascinated me because it was very different from what I actually expected it to be. This led me to order the, a copy and to ex, to explore the book myself, and that was a very um, astonishing experience because I could really, I really felt this was a mirror of myself. I could see myself within this book and, and, and the way I lived life. And um, since then, uh, it was clear, it was clear to me that that Satanist is the is the only valid label I could take. So. From then on, it, it took some time until I joined the Church of Satan. Um, I first uh, did more research, uh, reading more books of Dr. LaVey and other Church of Satan members. But joining the Church of Satan soon became an act of respect towards the, the, the organization that, in, that established Satanism, so to say. Right. Well, that's very cool, man. Um, I always find it interesting what brings people... To, to the organization and what you know what what prompts them to sort of jump over that hurdle of, of outing themselves to the organization because it seems like sometimes that is also a, a pretty damn big deal I mean just realizing who you are I mean that's one thing um, outing yourself to your loved ones that's one thing but putting yourself on the center stage you know that there, there's a little bit of vulnerability and Mm-hmm. Though most of us as Satanists don't ever, you know, really com- communicate with, with anyone else out there about it, uh, the ones that do, it seems like you're really sort of putting yourself out there a little bit more uh, because of all the negative stereotypes that are associated with it uh, and, uh, and and just the expectation that can be there, I think. So uh, I always found it interesting. Um, let's let's focus here on Vasca Radio specifically now. What was the genesis for you two uh, to come together 
how did you meet uh, and decide to, to really create this podcast? Well, I think uh, we have to thank Warlock Blackthorn because he has established uh, his online uh, group, the, the Order of the Black Dragon. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is, so to say, a think tank for uh, Satanists. And that's the way uh, Warlock, Tear Instinct, and myself have, have actually met and um, uh, started to work on several exchanged... We have exchanged ideas, got to know each other a little bit, and we have also started working on, on, on some projects together. And then this whole thing evolved. And, and we, uh, in the course of time, we felt we, we uh, very much agree on... on, on on many ideas and many aspects, even even uh, beyond Satanism, and um, that has led us to the idea to to invent the Vesca as a concept, also. So, uh, Warlock Tier Instinct, can you can you explain for my audience what exactly Vasca means? Absolutely, uh, Vasca is violent aesthetic subconscious agenda. Um, the concept came to me with the creation of In Through This Devoured. And I, I contacted uh, Prometheus with the idea, and we we pretty much it, it just it took off. It, it was a no brainer to us. It came to us just as just as clear as, as the ringing of the bell. And what we're doing is not so much showcasing the violence itself, but we're not allowing people to escape the responsibility. For the violent situations that they create for themselves you know many times many different um i want to call them criminals will occupy their time with criminal behavior and most of the time these criminals are christian they're muslim they're of some sort of the uh, theistic uh philosophy that they subscribe to whatever and when when they commit these actions it is their groups who want to turn around and say things like well this person wasn't a real christian this person wasn't a real muslim or whatever you know they just try to escape the responsibility and what me and prometheus have done with the basket is we take away their umbrella so that all of that can rain down on them that they're not going to be able to escape these things and just keep putting it off so that it, it can keep repeating itself. You know, we want to exploit the violence. We want to, I feel that hate is just as, just as a valid emotion as love or any other emotion. And it isn't so much the hate that we're promoting as it is the hate that they're trying to put back into a society that it really just doesn't need to be there anymore. You know, I'm all for pulling out ideologies and philosophies that only continue the destructive nature of innocent citizens. And I feel that Vasca, it's a tool that serves me and Prometheus, but at the same time, the aesthetic qualities can be found in many, many arenas of art. And we we see it prevalent in a lot of the, um, the, a lot of Church of Satan artists. And this is where we like to have them on the show and talk to them. A lot of them don't, they don't have an idea of what basket is, but at the same time, they're using it in their art, kind of like with uh, C.W. Hell's mind. Nice. So, really, what, and I'm, I'm going to try to break this down in a slightly different way, basket could be seen as pulling back the curtain from individual delusion, uh, whether it's intentional or not, and 
forcing responsibility upon those who may not want to take it. Absolutely. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. It's an agenda. It is a subconscious agenda. Um, it's kind of like the, the Ouroboros on the cover of the Chaos Magnet. It's ongoing. It lingers in the mind. And the more that Vasca gets in, into the minds of, of others who are jiving with the Vasca, and then when the situation comes, that they can point the finger instead of turning around. That's what Vasca is all about to me in a sense, but it works on so many different levels. But uh, Prometheus, if you would elaborate on it on on your end. If I might add, there's one point. Um, the idea is also to reestablish balance. So uh, lots of things, uh, lots of situations have uh, when have gone out of balance in the world, like um, uh, morality systems. My co-host has just mentioned these uh, deluded ideologies: uh, Christianity, uh, Islam, Buddhism, uh, white light religion in general. Um, political ideologies um, they have they have uh, have established a code of uh, morality that is really um, something absolutely alien to the human animal like something that is really forcing the human animal to live in uh, to live uh, adhering to a code that is basically violating their 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 deepest uh, deepest drives. So um, that creates creates an unbalanced situation. That is just one example. And what the Vesca is doing, it is trying to. It is it is this force in nature. You could call, even call it Satan, uh, that is trying to reestablish the balance. Uh, you can see this in many ways. I would even go as far as, as far as saying that the whole situation now, with the financial crisis and, and, and the situation at the stock market. These tremors are, in a way, um, in a way, a situation that re-establishes balance. In a way, um, the same also with uh, natural natural catastrophes. Sometimes it's it's there is a problem of overpopulation, and sometimes nature just strikes to reseek this balance by uh, bringing up certain occurrences that that might that that are of course violent and harsh, but these are. Um, in a way, the pendulum swimming, swinging back into the opposite direction, since it has been swung in, in one direction too hard. That's, that's also the way I see it. And, um, of course, the, for instance, uh, let's say uh, you can say religious extremists like suicide bombers or fanatic Christians. Uh, these people, they, they are also they are people who are using violence. They are, they are really extreme in their ways of going about things. And they are not only... This violence can't be seen in an isolated way. It's, it's causing a counter-reaction, naturally. You don't have to do anything. It's happening all naturally. And uh, sooner or later, this, uh, this, this beast they have woken up will, will, will knock at that door. That's right. And that's what, that's I, right. what I would say the Wesker is doing. Exactly. And this is where, you know, social Darwinism, it, it, it has been, when people see the term of social Darwinism, they tend to dismiss it, thinking it's a pejorative term. And in all reality, people like myself and people like Citizen Prometheus who can see the positive aspects of social Darwinism because Darwinism goes beyond more than just natural selection of the species. You know, we can see it in a social setting as well. And this is where Vasca is very much alive in social Darwinism, in stratification. It works perfectly with the ideology of Satanism, with the philosophy of Satanism. And this is why I think that Vasca has become, it, it, it's ongoing. 
Vasca is getting stronger and stronger and stronger every single week. More and more people are coming to Vasca. More and more people are contacting me and Prometheus telling us, you know, I've, I've seen this all my life. I've participated in what you guys are, are doing all my life. It's just there never was a concept for it before me and Prometheus actually uh, codified it. Nice. Well, I, I have to tell you, I'm looking forward to... Uh you know, episodes that are being released here every week. And I got to, I got to be honest here. I really want to, uh, sit and, and talk about stuff like this longer because, um, <laughs> I, I find it really interesting, but unfortunately <laughs> I have, uh, other responsibilities that are going to have to drive me away from this conversation. Sure. Um, sure. Not an issue. Not an issue. L- let me, uh, this is, uh, the format of your show. Is it released weekly? Um, so far, we have released the, the the show bi-weekly. That means every every two weeks, um, approximately, we can say. Of course, it's it always it's the question uh, now now that we are on Radio Free Satan, we want to keep that rhythm. Actually, like uh, every two weeks, there should be a show. It's it's basically because we uh, we have a guest on every show. We 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 want to do we want to collect some ideas uh, for pranks. I, I simply want to uh, have some time in between to. Uh, have a prank I, I also apply in my everyday life and then share my experiences. And, uh, and in fact, I do not want to feel too much in a rush with a prank. I don't want to, to, to have it this way like, oh, I have to p- p- play a prank on somebody today because tomorrow we will have the show. So that makes sense. <laughs> <Yeah, yeah, yeah. laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, so uh, what brought you to um, Radio Free Satan uh, versus uh, just... Uh, Publishing as you have the first uh, four episodes now, I believe. We were actually contacted right after we released the first episode by a DJ on Radio Free Satan, and it was recommended to us that we contact Witch Nine. Um, I, I of course let Prometheus know right away, and the idea just kind of just kind of stayed there. And as we started releasing more episodes, you know, it kept coming up. Uh, we were still being contacted, asked if we were going to move it to Radio Free Satan. And much like how the basket kind of stirs in the in the minds of others, well, so did that me. And Prometheus and myself, we 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 kind of stirred on it, and we we agreed that it would be a good idea. We can get the basket out to more people. The message of the basket. Um, the things that we want to do on the show, and where else better than Radio Free Satan? It's a perfect home for Basque Radio. Hell yeah. Well, that's great. I, I know the time that I've been here, um, I've met a lot of really fantastic DJs, and the audience in Radio Free Satan, the listeners themselves, you know, it's it's the creme de la creme of... Uh, of, of podcast listeners, I think a little bit of pandering there, but it's true. I've gotten some really great uh, feedback from the community, and if if it helps, uh, if it helps, not only refine and develop uh, the Vasca for your show as it has you know, nine cents for mine, um, then I think you and everyone else involved with Radio Free Satan is going to benefit from uh, you moving over there. So well, I I'm just looking wanna... forward to. I'm looking forward to uh, the shows that you're going to be putting out in the future, um, and uh, I'm, I'm certainly looking forward to the development um, that naturally takes place uh, in these podcasts and, and, and how they grow. Uh, and, and Thorne, I just want to 
I, I would just like to say I've been listening to Radio Free Satan pretty much from the rip. I can remember uh, Honey Hellfire. I can remember Magister Paradise doing uh, the metal show. I'm a big fan of Reverend Bill M. I'm a big fan of uh, Clint Mephisto. Yeah. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the Ingram brothers. David and Matt are yeah. just, just totally stand-up people. Um, more radio. Um, radio Free Satan as a whole has very much been um, a cornerstone of entertainment value for me. Um, also, uh, Warlock Joe Galston, uh, the amazing stuff that he's putting out. So coming to Radio Free Satan for me is is truly an honor, and I'm sure Prometheus is, is as as excited as I am. I must say I've always admired Radio Free Satan, and I've had a lots of lots of delightful nights listening to shows. And um, as you say, the Ingram Brothers, uh, Warlock Gorston's show, um, I can't even name all the shows I, I have enjoyed on Radio Free Satan. <laughs> it's definitely quite an honor to be to be on that platform and. Uh, I think it's the, the the perfect place for Vesca Radio because that is really um, also also um, matching matching the whole um, idea behind Vesca Radio perfectly. Right. Well, I'm going to have to have you guys individually on the show to talk about your projects because uh, I mean, one, they're 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 very inspiring and powerful and. Uh, worthy of, of discussion but I think that's going to have to do it for our, our interview today um, thank you so much for joining me it's truly been a pleasure I hope to be able to talk to you again uh, collectively and individually um, and until then hail Satan hey, hail Anton LaVey and hail Satan hail Satan thanks a lot it's been a pleasure on my end as well and wishing you all the best for Nine Cents Podcast and for you in person also thank you yeah it was really great talking to those gentlemen all right, well, you know what? That is it for yet another episode of Nine Cents. I hope you enjoyed it. I would love to hear from you. Visit the website ninecentspodcast.com and send your correspondence to info at ninecentspodcast.com. Let me know of any suggestions, critiques, corrections, or general comments you might have. You can visit the Undercroft, Facebook, Twitter, or MySpace page for nine cents and get updated on weekly topics. You can also listen to the show through Radio Free Satan or download the show Monday nights via my RSS feed found at ninecentspodcast.com or subscribe via iTunes by searching nine cents. And if you do that, don't forget to leave a rating or comment. If you'd like to learn more about the Church of Satan, visit, wait for it, it's going to be shocking, churchofsatan.com. Never saw that one, right? If you'd like to meet other Satanists, visit Undercroft at satannet.com. And if you'd like to hear other fine Satanic voices, music, or personalities, visit Radio Free Satan, an online streaming radio station. And once again, thank you for joining me, and as always, I'm your host, Adam Campbell, and until next week, Hail Satan.